I'm excited to announce the launch of a Curbsiders Patreon. We love bringing you great content like our mini series, which we're doing new seasons of, an upgraded website, which we just did, and more video content, which is new in the past year. So join our Patreon and you're going to get Cashlack admitting privileges. That helps support the Curbsiders, plus you're going to get all episodes of the entire show ad-free. That's old episodes and new episodes, plus twice monthly bonus episodes with me and Paul hanging out, recapping episodes, doing picks of the week, answering listener questions. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll also have a Discord server exclusive to people with Cashlack admitting privileges. There's no better way to enjoy a little knowledge food for your brain hole. So visit patreon.com slash curbsiders on the 27th of March or after and sign up for our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. Welcome to the Neff Madness pod crawl. The idea behind this pod crawl, which we participated in last year, is to get a bunch of medical podcasts together to cover all eight regions in Neff Madness. So we're doing that again this year. If you check out the description in the show notes, you can see all eight podcasts, or you can go to neffmadness.com slash pod crawl to get the links to all of the shows. And of course, don't forget to fill out your brackets for this year's Neff Madness tournament. Paul, I went to my doctor this week. Uh huh. And uh, I was pretty ill, but he told me I should rub salt over my entire body. And Paul, now I'm cured. That's that's actually not bad. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, tonight, it's Neff Madness episode. We're talking about primary aldosteronism and renovascular hypertension. Are you excited? I am. We, it's an amazing episode. I was cross-checking a lot of what we learned against patients that I'm currently taking care of and thinking I need to do some other stuff now. So this was, this was jam-packed with useful stuff. Yeah, we, we recently did uh, a, a aldosterone, uh, primary aldosteronism with Dr. William Young, Bill Young, and that was, we immediately had people like, that was great, we want more on that topic. And so with this, this guest, we just couldn't resist talking about this. We also, of course, give our picks for the uh, MRA category in Neff Madness, and this is part of the Neff Madness pod crawl for this year. Uh, there's a bunch of other podcast, too many to name, but uh, they will be in the show description here. So please make sure you check out some of those. A lot of great Neff Madness podcasts going on. Uh, Paul, will you remind the audience, what is it that we do on on the Curbsiders on this show? On this show in particular, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And we had the good pleasure of talking to Dr. Matt Luther um, about all things sort of MRAE and renovascular hypertension specifically. Um, but I will actually let you tell us a little bit more about who we talked to and what we talked about. 
So Dr. Matt Luther, he is an associate professor at Vanderbilt Medical Center. He is director of the Vanderbilt Comprehensive Hypertension Center, where he evaluates and treats resistant and secondary causes of hypertension, such as primary aldosteronism and renovascular hypertension. He is board certified in internal medicine and nephrology and and is a certified hypertension specialist. He is co-editor of the recent Hypertension Secrets, second edition, and serves as an education editor for the journal Hypertension. A reminder to the audience that this episode and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And our disclosures for this episode, Dr. Luther has consulted for Mineralis and for Bayer. Bayer is the maker of Finerenone, which we discussed briefly on this episode. However, he has no financial interest in that product. And our discussion tonight was fair and balanced. We talked about a balanced range of therapeutic options. So with all that, enjoy the show. Matt, we've been talking for a while. I'm very excited for the audience to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And these are the, the topics we're going to get into tonight are like stuff that I don't understand as well as I would like to. Um, and so we're just going to get right into some cases here. We're going to talk about primary aldosteronism. We're going to talk about renovascular hypertension. Paul, would you start us off with a case from Cashlack? Sure. I'd be thrilled to. Matt, we're going to talk about CJ, or at least to start. CJ is a 55-year-old male with a diagnosis of hypertension, actually diagnosed at age 25. Class 1 obesity, type 2 diabetes, with the most recent A1C being 7.5%, with mild albuminuria, CKD3B with an EGFR of 35, who's coming in for follow-up with his hypertension. He takes, um, brace yourself, hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams, telmosartan, 80 milligrams, amlodipine, 10 milligrams. And despite being on these, blood pressure is still consistently elevated, the systolics 150s to 160s, the diastolics 90s to 100s. He does not have, as far as our lab review can tell, any history of spontaneous hypokalemia, so he's been tolerating his thiazide just fine. Does not have sleep apnea, does not use NSAIDs with any consistency or any other sort of culprit medications that we can think about. Um, No one's feeding him any steroids. Does not drink alcohol and had a prior renal artery ultrasound that was normal. He's tried many different combinations of blood pressure regimens over the years, um, and so to be a little bit more definitive, we decide to check an early morning renin and an aldosterone level. The renin is suppressed, the aldosterone is 13, and he's had a non-con CT scan that we review that actually shows he has bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. So we've got a lot of information here for this patient um, and a lot of sort of things to dig into. I guess before we get into treatments, I would ask you, is there anything else that we missed or that we should do in terms of working this patient up? Well, I would say this is a pretty typical patient for you know who I see in the resistant hypertension clinic or most nephrologists see in a, in a nephrology clinic, CKD clinic. Um, the main thing I would do is review what has already been done to look at the trend for protein in the urine. So proteinuria trend, albuminuria trend, how he's responded to treatment. Um, so that's the first thing. I'd also, just to check off the hypertension checklist to look at the EKG, because I risk stratify people based on if they have LVH or repolarization, outer maladies, you might be a little more aggressive or do echo testing if they have um, significant abnormalities on that. Um, and also the important thing is the creatinine trend. Where is it, is it rapidly changing? Is it recently gotten worse? What is the trend for pr- both proteinuria and creatinine, creatinine trends um, based on the treatments there? Um, this is not someone who 
it, it's very suggestive of primary aldo already just based on the aldosterone 13 with a suppressed renin on the medicines that he's that um that this patient is taking so especially a thiazide and an arb so with telmosartan that renin should not be suppressed on those medicines so that's abnormal right there and highly suggestive of primary aldo although with their medical conditions this is not necessarily somebody that i'm enthusiastic about working up for surgery they've got bilateral um, appearance of disease on their adrenal ct i would look at that see if they look like they have you know a large nodule that's not really commented on in the ct report because often the radiologists don't really um they they gloss over adrenal nodules quite often so I, i'm in the habit of looking at that myself to see, and I'm surprised that they mentioned bilateral um, hyperplasia or nodularity. Oftentimes, I'll look at the CT and it looks nodular, or hyperplastic, and, and it's mentioned uh, within normal limits, which some nodules are within normal limits, so they just say within normal limits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other question besides primary aldo is, is there any contribution of cortisol? Um, so I would probably consider doing a milligram dexamethasone suppression test in this patient. I uh, learned from Bill Young on your podcast also about doing a DHEAS first and using that to kind of guide the workup. So that would be another way to, to screen for hypercortisolism. But really, this patient sounds like they may have primary aldo and need treatment for that. I just wanted to point out, because you, you mentioned uh, us talking to Dr. Young, since then I've had a couple patients where I'm looking at adrenal nodules, and a lot of the times they'll just say a nodule, and they won't give you the Hounsfield units, they won't say if it's fatty, you know. They don't. So it is really like, um, so you are having to call the radiologist and sort of prompt them with clinically, okay, clinically this person has hypertension and hypokalemia or whatever, and um, could this be this or this, and what are the Hounsfield units? I'm finding that that's, you know, just not always there. It's so, not. It's uh, never in my reports. Um, you know, I've gotten in the habit of of just learning to do it myself. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I usually consult with our adrenal surgeons. If I have somebody that I think is headed their way, I'll, I'll give them a heads up and look at the CT scan right. with them. Okay. Yeah. And then what you mentioned here is even if someone did say there's bilateral hyperplasia, you still look to see if there's a nodule because I think even with bilateral hyperplasia you know, one side could be still where most of the aldosterone is coming from, it sounded like. So, yeah, so they so still there, might do. Th- there are rare cases where we do refer people to surgery that have bilateral hyperplasia. So those situations, and we're kind of getting getting ahead maybe in this case, um, but it, mm-hmm. this is the only time I would consider in this particular patient of referring that her, this patient to surgery is if they just have refractory hypertension, it's just uncontrollable. We've got them on maximal medications and they clearly have an aldosterone excess, renin suppressed. You keep pushing up an MRA like spironolactone or or they don't tolerate spironolactone or a plerinone Mm -hmm. or a milarod or anything you're, you're doing to treat their hypertension and their potassium is is still on the lower side so that there's evidence that you know you're just not able to give them enough spironolactone and that is the case in the rare patient it does happen occasionally mm. 
And then those people we would take to adrenal vein sampling. And if they have a predominance on, on one, if they lateralize to one side, then you may still get some benefit of, of doing ad- adrenalectomy as like a debulking type procedure. I mean, that, that's like a last ditch off um, an option for a lot of these patients. I think I've only done that a couple of times, but, you know, patient places that have, um, you know, really high volume adrenal centers, they probably do that a lot more. So, Paul, this is my true fashion. I'm just jumping us way ahead. So sure, I'm sure you love right. that. You want to you wanna ground us, bring us back to earth with uh, with more of a, a, a linear progression here? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll do the Paul thing, right? Just um, go back to very basics. And actually, let's say, so you have a lot of evidence for PA here. I mean, we, we have, you know, adrenal hyperplasia. You have sort of um, some correlating evidence say you're explaining this to a patient, I w- we would love to hear sort of what your spiel looks like when you're trying to explain to patients why their blood pressure is the way it is and sort of what you're trying to work them up for. So how how do you counsel patients about this in, in plain language? So I basically tell them that uh, primary aldo is the most common reason that we see resistant hypertension in patients. It's about, in my clinic, which is a, a specialty referral clinic for resistant hypertension, about 15 to even 20% of the patients that I see new in my clinic have primary aldo. So th- that is a pretty high percentage of people. It's excess production, inappropriate aldosterone production by the adrenal gland. And I don't go into all the genetics and all the stuff that we do know about this to the patients, but we've learned an incredible amount over the past 10 to 20 years. I would say, I think about 15 years, we basically understand the genetics of all these nodules that uh, aldo producing adenomas um, and even the hereditary forms. I I think we understand about 95% of the cases as far as the genetic cause of it. Um, We still don't understand why it's so common. It's just very common, but it's inappropriate aldosterone production that talks to the kidneys and makes your kidneys reabsorb salt and, and excrete potassium. And that drives hypertension. So about 50% of the time it's due to a nodule that we can remove surgically. And the other 50% of the time it needs to be treated with medicines. And that is the suspicion in this case, just based on the adrenal hyperplasia on CT. Although that may be misleading too. You mentioned trending the uh, proteinuria, albuminuria, I hadn't really associated, you know, I usually think of doing that for people with uh, diabetic kidney disease, but what about uh, with with primary aldosteronism, are patients more likely to have hypertension that also has proteinuria and with with the CKD? Is that part of the progression, like say it goes untreated? If I see a lot of people with severe hypertension that's just been going on for years, and even though hypertension shouldn't have massive proteinuria, you can have quite a bit of proteinuria even with severe hypertensive disease that's just gone on for a long time. And it, mm. if I, I want to see what direction they're headed. If they're treated aggressively, their blood pressure's recently been improving, and then I also see that their proteinuria is improving, that's reassuring to me. Uh, the real thing I want to make sure is that I'm not missing another kidney disease. So I'm not missing a glomerulonephritis, you know, occasionally somebody comes to my clinic that has a glomerulonephritis. Um, if they've got a lot of blood in their urine, 
you know, I'll make sure that I'm paying attention to that and there's not some other urologic explanation for it. But if they have, uh, you know, glomerulonephritis, though, they may need a kidney biopsy, especially if it's brand new AKI, a, a brand new kidney disease, proteinuria, hematuria. Mm-hmm. You obviously take that much more seriously and don't just blame that. Primary aldo does not cause hematuria and proteinuria. It doesn't cause like a full-blown glomerulonephritis. So that would be something mm-hmm. totally different. Hey, listeners, did you ever wonder, like, what is locum tenums? Is it right for me? Well, our sponsor today is locumstory.com. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenums should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locums is a good option for you? Well, go to an unbiased information source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options out there. You know you want to earn some extra money. You know you're thinking of, maybe there's a better job out there for me. So get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. That's locumstory.com. Paul's initial question, so what else would we do? It sounds like you're looking for end-organ damage. So the EKG, is there LVH, early repolarization? That might lead to an echo, uh, as we just talked about, sort of looking what other, how bad is their kidney disease? How much proteinuria do they have, if any? What's the trend of the creatinine? Um, and then you said also just looking at the looking at the scans yourself, kind of the Hounsfield units, The are there any nodules there that weren't commented on? And then you said also maybe looking for cortisol, uh, excess cortisol secretion. So uh, thinking about that that work up there with a dexamethasone suppression test. Um, and so now let's say that that stuff, you know, they don't have this patient, CJ, our, our 55-year-old man, doesn't have uh, cort- hypercortisol. Um, the, let's just say the creatinine is, um, you know, has been stable and we, let's say we have, we see some LVH, um, echo doesn't look too bad, like grade one diastolic dysfunction, which like, uh, <laughs> As go we all. the old yeah. joke that everyone has it. So what else, <laughs> what else would you do next to confirm PA in this person, primary aldosteronism? So in this particular patient, I'm not sure that I would do a whole lot more testing. I mm-hmm. would probably opt to go straight to treatment for this person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I think this they have a lot of things that kind of indicate that they're high risk. So they've got uncontrolled hypertension. Their diabetes is marginally controlled, not, not too uncontrolled, um, but they've got CKD. So those are pretty high cardiovascular risk factors right there, along with the LVH would add to it. So I would push pretty hard to reduce blood pressure. Um, maybe not necessarily to 120 or below, but close to as close as I can um, my approach to that is I, I try to get everybody to less than 120, but you do run into problems and sometimes that makes you stop or pull back just a little bit. So to remind the audience, this person's on hydrochlorothiazide 25, telmisartan 80, amlodipine 10. How might you tweak this regimen um, off the bat and w- what else might you add or, or ch- change? 
the the first change I probably would make off the bat is switch to chlorothaladone, twenty five milligrams. It's a it's milligram per milligram. It's more potent. I know the study recently showed no cardiovascular differences, but mm-hmm. twenty five milligrams of chlorothaladone is more potent than twenty five of HCTZ. Um, there's pretty good evidence now in CKD that chlorothaladone at that dose is going to be beneficial. So that also may make a difference. So I would do that. It would also lower potassium a little bit more than just HCTZ alone. So that may actually be a benefit and help us um, get this patient to tolerate an MR antagonist. Mm. And um, now they, I, I think an SGLT2 inhibitor is indicated for this patient too. They've got CKD proteinuria. So an SGLT2 inhibitor also would help lower potassium a little bit, or at least constrain it if you did add a, um, an MR antagonist. So I think all those things probably need to be done here, given that their blood pressure is pretty far away from being in the, in the goal range. I realize this is a case by case basis, but how I would think sort of once you know, putatively what's causing the hypertension, I, I, I wonder why you wouldn't prioritize an MRA as opposed to sort of, I mean, obviously the SGLT2 makes sense just sort of good in the background diabetes and, and all the known protections with that. But that, yeah, I guess, let me ask the question a different way. How, how likely are we able to get this patient controlled without an MRA sort of, you know, tweaking the medications that we have in place already? Is that a realistic expectation? Yeah, honestly, I would, I would probably do that at the same time. I would probably, if potassium allows, add spironolactone as well as change to chlorothaladone. Gotcha. So it it does depend on what the potassium is and and whether they have hyponatremia, which is always a confounding factor, um, and also how stable their creatinine is. This patient's creatinine is pretty stable, so I, it, it's a little bit risky whenever their creatinine is. Uh, you know, they've got CKD three. I do use quite a bit of spironolactone in these patients and and watch really closely, um, and creatinine will go up when you initiate all these, these treatments and lower uh, blood pressure as well. So we will have to counsel them and, and warn them creatinine is going to go up when we lower blood pressure, no matter what we use, but we know that it's going to go up when we start spironolactone, especially. Yeah. You, you were mentioning this to me when we did sort of our, our pre-interview, you were saying that there's are these people, are they sort of hyperfiltrating because they, they have unopposed aldosterone kind yes. of and and they're hyperfiltrating and then once you relieve that, we expect the GFR. Is that because aldosterone's clamping the outflow from the glomerulus? So when you, so it's clamping that down, so they're hyperfiltrating. And then when you relieve that, all of a sudden there's less pressure, so their GFR goes down. That's my we well, were talking about simplistic explanations <laughs> before, but yeah, sim- <laughs> how sim- does that work? Simplistically <laughs> Aldo excess causes hyperglomerular hyperfiltration. So mm-hmm. that is going to make their GFR look better than it truly is so that there's probably mm-hmm. some underlying kidney damage even more pronounced than what we suspect based on the labs. Mm-hmm. So if you start them on an MRA, creatinine is going to go up because you're going to prevent that hyperfiltration. In the long run, it's a good thing, just like it is when we prevent that with an ACE inhibitor. Now, also with an SGLT2 inhibitor, we think it does the same thing. Um, we know that people with primary aldo have the same hyperfiltration. In fact, if you send patients to adrenalectomy 
and cure their primary aldosteronism, creatinine, it can go up uh, significantly because a lot of those patients are completely inadequately treated until they get adrenalectomy. So creatinine can go up significantly after adrenalectomy. And I've, I've seen that a few times and been surprised myself, even though I know it can happen. Yeah, Paul, this seems like this would make me scared, right? Because you're like putting them on the right medication. Mm-hmm. Once you get the dose right, their creatinine is going to get worse. Yep. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle this practically. <laughs> it it a good doesn't... Just by my side. Yeah, I haven't done this. I haven't seen... Um, you know, a huge increase in creatinine and, and I'm a nephrologist and, and so I'm a little more comfortable with creatinine going, you know, up to three from, you know, one and a half to up to three. And as long as it's stable, you know, I've got patients that had severe hypertension, you get them on all these right medicines, you bring, bring their blood pressure down. I've seen two people within the past week that I started treating 10 years ago. And when I brought their blood pressure down, put them on MR antagonist, creatinine did go up to about three. And I've got, I've got quite a few patients whose creatinine went up to three and it's, it's stayed there over 10 years. It hasn't gotten any worse, but you take the biggest hit when you first lower blood pressure, when you first put these people on the appropriate medicines. Um, but long-term you know, as we've always seen in those, the trials, it, it stays there and it has a slower decline. And I just anecdotally, I see that in these patients that I'm seeing that have stable CKD3 kind of people that I've, I've been telling for 10 years, you know, uh, we're going to have to think about dialysis at some point, but it, it stayed stable. Now that's not everybody. There, there are people that progress to seek to end stage renal disease and the biggest thing I worry about in these people, in these patients, is that their biggest risk is cardiovascular risk. So their, by far their biggest risk is not necessarily developing kidney failure and needing dialysis. Their biggest risk is developing a stroke, heart failure, and dying. That's much more likely than them going on to end-stage renal disease. Yeah, I was reading about that. I just, I, I guess, I mean, it makes intuitive sense, but just for people with the same risk factors with just essential hypertension versus primary aldosteronism, there's increased adverse cardiac and kidney events. Mason make, Paul, you know, your favorite, oh, your sure. favorite acronyms. Uh, Mason make, right? With, with primary aldosteronism, if even if everything else was the same, which I just kind of it makes sense, but it just wasn't on my radar, I guess. And uh, so, so you told us, so we're expecting this creatinine bump. Probably, uh, probably n- you should have a friendly neighborhood nephrologist following along as well, especially if you know if they're if they're in CKD, you know, three or yes. CKD four in this patient. Yes. And then you mentioned uh, starting spironolactone. So I was reading that the dose the dose may need to go as high as up into the hundreds. I mean, normally we start at twelve and a half or twenty five, and then we go up to fifty. I'm not usually going much higher than that. So how, mm-hmm. what's a typical dose for somebody with like bilateral? Because I think I read maybe there's a little bit of a different clinical phenotype if someone has an aldosterone producing adenoma versus bilateral hyperplasia. But what are typical doses? Yeah, I would be cautious in starting it just like you're describing. So I would start 12 and a half once a day, monitor, check potassium, creatinine, and within a couple of weeks, one to two weeks, 
Um, and then I would push that up based on potassium blood pressure. And I also monitor renin acti- renin or renin activity. My institution does uh, cash like Memorial does uh, renin concentration, I presume. So, <laughs> Uh, renin concentration to make sure that that's not, if you treat appropriately, that should increase and it should no longer be suppressed. That's when you know that you've really treated them successfully. It's really hard. And I would predict this patients, you're going to have a hard time pushing the dose up high enough to achieve that. Um, in pa- patients with bilateral hyperplasia, it's, it's more difficult. I have, have to push the dose up higher. You know, even in all the patients that I see that are similar to this, um, this is the patient that I might get up to 100 milligrams. I don't usually push up a whole lot further than that. If I'm in that range, this patient probably you're going to be limited by potassium because of their CKD. So you're probably not going to be able to push up uh, the dose any higher than that. So practically speaking, that's where this is. But if they didn't have CKD, they had bilateral hyperplasia, this might be somebody that you could you would push the dose up to 100, 200 milligrams. You know, in, in the 1970s, they used 400 milligrams of spironolactone. Oh. <laughs> so that's a lot. You know, you're going to get gynecomastia in men almost guaranteed. And it, at that high dose, you actually inhibit aldosynthase. And so you actually block the aldosterone production, which... In, in these patients might be a benefit, but um, we don't really do that. I, I don't ever, I have never done that. Eplerinone is a little bit more selective, right? So yes. less side effects. I read it has to be dosed twice a day. What, what does the dosing and titration, what's it like for that one? Yeah, ideally twice a day. I basically double the dose of spironolactone. So if they're taking, if I'm switching from spironolactone to eplerinone, uh, first of all, spironolactone takes a while to wash out of the system, so you got to be a little careful if you're switching to either a plerinone or a meloride, especially if potassium has been borderline. You you want to probably give spironolactone a little bit of time to wash out and then start the other agent. So a plerinone, I use twice the dose of spironolactone daily and then gradually go up. The biggest issue I've had with a plerinone is when you start getting up to 50 milligrams twice a day or 100 milligrams twice a day, I, I just have trouble getting the pharmacist to fill it, even though it's the right thing for the patient. So, and insurance to pay for it. But they definitely need it at the those doses, but you start getting just incredible pushback from pharmacy and, and uh, people paying for the medicine. Is amiloride something you're using as an adjunct to the MRAs, or is it is it a uh, is it just sometimes as monotherapy if they don't tolerate because of side effects? Um, typically, MRA? typically I use it as an alternative. You almost never should be using spironolactone plus amiloride, and I, I would mm-hmm. say most people should never be using those two together. Uh, that definitely carries a huge risk of hyperkalemia. Um, the people that the patients that have severe bilateral hyperplasia that's just really refractory and they have sev- they continue to have severe hypokalemia and resistant hypertension they're 
might be a patient or two in my career or, you know, I've, I've talked to other hypertension specialists, adrenal specialists that actually do use the two together, but it's really in a, a rare patient. So you, you really okay. probably shouldn't be doing probably, that. Paul, we probably won't be doing that. There's a 0% chance of me doing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to be really careful with these things. And and also the other ones to look out for, like Bactrim, people... Uh, oh, sure. Bactrim raises the the risk of hyperkalemia tremendously when you're giving spironolactone, amelorod, any of the case-bearing diuretics, and, and it's ubiquitous. And I, I have a hard time preventing it even in my patients because... You know, they they have a UTI and that's what they get. Matt, I feel like we're possibly, I can never tell, but possibly on the cusp of wild enthusiasm for the non-steroidal MRAs. I, I know with Fidelio, um, we're looking at Finerinone. And actually for this particular patient who has diabetes and, and some challenging blood pressure and a little bit of albuminuria, this this there might even be indicated. I guess my question for you is, is that is that a class of medications we're seeing used for PA specifically? I wouldn't say specifically PA, uh, Phrenirinone wouldn't necessarily be great for this patient for the treatment of PA, but this person also has CKD with albuminuria, so it would be a good treatment for that. Um, so this patient has two indications. One is spironolactone for resistant hypertension. The other is um, phenerinone because of the CKD and albuminuria. So I would base my decision on whether they can tolerate spironolactone with the rise in creatinine or potassium. And if they have issues with that, I would probably use phenerinone. But the blood pressure effects of phenerinone are a little bit less uh, proven, although there is some data coming out that it, it may have some benefit in people that have severe hypertension. And is it is it going to be, do you think they're going to go for an approval for primary aldosteronism with, uh, with phenerinone? I'm not sure if they are or not. Um, that, that's really a small piece of the pie. So I'm not sure that it's going to be easy to do a clinical study in that group and get a specific approval. It would also probably be difficult for phenerinone to beat spironolactone in that category. So I mm -hmm. think it serves probably as a good alternative agent if you have issues with spironolactone, amelorod, aplerinone. Um, and there's plenty of those patients. I have patients that have difficulty tolerating a bunch of those different medicines. Obviously, spironolactone yeah. has its its side effects due to the off-target effects. A plerinone, more well-tolerated, but um, amelorod, people have GI side effects with that and sometimes can't tolerate it. So it, I'm in the camp that I think it's always good to have a number of options for my patients. So right. Whatever works for them is what I'm trying to get. And with phenerinone, what we talked about with Joel was that, uh, you know, with... For, for patients with CKD and diabetes, it just made it recently into the into the KDGO guideline. And it, it it seems like, especially if the patient is already on uh, like the renin aldosterone, yeah, if they're on RAS blockade and they're already on an SGLT2 inhibitor and they still have residual proteinuria, then, you know, that's maybe maybe a reason to to go to it. But uh, we'll we'll see, I'm, I'm sure. We, as, as Paul and I were joking, uh, the other day, there's like, I'm seeing commercials for it pop up on TV, which is, which I was surprised. I'm like, oh my <laughs> gosh, it seems like such a niche medication, but I guess a lot of patients have diabetes and CKD. So yeah, yeah right. I think it, 
as much as I hate direct to consumer advertising, it's really great to see it for a condition like CKD. And, uh, you know, because we've not had those treatments in the past that have been proven well enough to advertise on TV. Yeah. And I guess helping patients connect that diabetes and C- can cause CKD. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess, Paul, at this point, maybe we can do quickly picks our picks for Neff Madness. So the Neff Madness region is uh, is MRAs. And so it's like, is this new kid the non-steroidal MRA? Is that the bigger story or is spironolactone still, you know, is that going to be your pick? So, uh, well, Matt, you're our guest. Let's, let's go to you first. Uh, which, which one of these two would you, would you pick to win in Neff Madness this year? Spironolactone or finerina or non-steroidal? Or, or is it just uh, steroidal versus non-steroidal? I think it's steroidal versus non, okay. non-steroidal MRAs. Um, you know, I've used spironolactone for such a long time. It, it is very hard to beat spironolactone. Um, I give a lot of props to finerinone for doing the study and proving that MR antagonists are beneficial in CKD, not just for cardiovascular events, but for kidney disease, for multiple indications. I'm still going to go with steroidal because they are such a good tool that I, that I use every day. And I, and I'm a resistant hypertension specialist, so I've got to go with steroidal. Paul. Yeah, it's, um, I, I, we've talked about this on, on prior Neff Madness. I, do comically bad i wash out immediately my first instinct is always the wrong instinct um probably (laughs) done better than i have i've never finished in the top 50 (laughs) percent no like it's i like i i I wash out like putting my name in for the bride like it's it's not great but um having said that i feel like i don't know people like a new toy so i'm I'm gonna go the non-steroidals just because it is the new kid and we we do have some studies that are are creating some buzz and i i'm knowing knowing i'm gonna fail um but that i think i'm just gonna go with that trying to trying to play the game what do you think man well I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with the steroidal, like the, the tried and true, the MRAs. I'm always skeptical, Paul, you know, these new trials, highly selected patients, non-steroidal MRAs. So I'm still, I still want to see, hear some more about it, but I, uh, I, I would, I would go with spironolactone and plerinone, the, the older MRAs, uh, for my, for my bracket there. And, and like both you guys, I have done terrible in Neff Madness uh, in the as far as brackets go. As far as podcasting goes, Paul, we've killed it. A number one, yeah, for many years now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, let's with with the with the rest of our time here. We do want to talk about another topic that uh, we have never covered on the show before. This episode is sponsored by Indeed. Think about someone who has changed your life for the better. How incredible would it be if your company could find more of those life-changing people right when you needed them? If you are hiring, then you need Indeed. It's the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. You're not going to spend hours on job sites looking for candidates with all the right skills. You can do that all right on Indeed. We used Indeed last year to do some hiring 
and it worked great. It was easy to use the platform, sort through candidates. We were overwhelmed by the quality and the quantity of how many applicants we got. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. And that's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. So visit indeed.com slash internal medicine to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Bibi is a 62-year-old female with a diagnosis of hypertension, diagnosed at age 55. She has pure hypercholesterolemia. She is in the overweight category for the BMI, her BMI being 29. She has CKD3A with an EGFR of 48 and a creatinine of 1.3. Former history of tobacco use, she quit 10 years ago um, after a 30-pack year history. She also has a family history of premature CAD with a father who had a heart attack at age 45, who's coming to your clinic with uncontrolled hypertension. She was recently admitted for an episode of flash pulmonary edema. Today in your office, her blood pressure is 165 over 95. And this is fairly consistent um, with prior readings. She is currently on valsartan hydrochlorothiazide, the combo of 320 and 25, respectively. Nifedipine XL 90 milligrams, uh, which she's been on for the past two weeks. For many years, she was actually controlled on HCTC 25 milligrams and nifedipine XL 60 milligrams. Um, so this has been a little bit of a change for her. She does not have adrenal adenoma or hyperplasia, according to our expertly read CT. She does not have sleep apnea. She does not have history of alcohol use. She's not taking NSAIDs. We are not um, filling her full of steroids. She does have a recent echocardiogram because who in this world does not with an EF of approximately 55 to 60% with impaired relaxation of the left ventricle. So what we're trying to paint a picture here, I think, is actually perhaps a patient with renovascular hypertension. So I I'm wondering if you sort of talk us through what that even means, I think, to start, and then we'll sort of talk about what the workup looks like and, and where to go from here. All right. So the renovascular hypertension in this patient, the big clue is the flash pulmonary edema. And if she was on, on that was before she was started on the Valsartan, I think, um, and then mm -hmm. her blood pressure is controlled after that, or actually it's not controlled. Um, so that's... Renovascular hypertension is something that can provoke flash pulmonary edema, and that would be an indication to pursue maybe a workup or or intervention, especially if it occurs when they're on an ARB already. So I've seen a few cases of that where they're on losartan or maybe a lower dose ineffective ARB, and they still have severe episodes of hypertension that can just come on episodically. Um, that can happen with renovascular hypertension um, and cause pulmonary edema, especially if they have a little LV dysfunction. So renovascular hypertension is not just a blockage in the kidney artery. It usually has to be pretty severe, severe enough to cause an ischemic insult to the, kid in, to the kidney that provokes renin release, and that provokes these episodes of hypertension. Um, I see a lot of cases that have a little bit of a stenosis on either angiogram or renal duplex ultrasound, and not everything that you see there is causing renovascular hypertension. I've I've sent plenty of people to an intervention, and they don't improve after having that that stenosis relieved. So resistant hypertension is just super common. And you have to be really selective in those patients that you really work up for this or send 
to the to an intervention especially can you explain to me i feel like i'm missing something obvious here but the the sort of paroxysms hypertension or so these patients sort of crashing the flash pulmonary edema I guess, you know, mechanistically, it makes sense if you had started someone on like an acer narb and then their blood pressure would, would go up like that, that I, or their credit would go up that I can kind of track. But why why are they having sort of these episodes? Um, like, what's the periodicity and what's the mechanism behind that? You know, I would, it's not super common. And I'm not sure that I can explain why it happens episodically like that, but it does. That's not an unusual story. And I've, part of it may just be that they're and that their ARB is not um, an adequate dose, or it's not long-acting enough, or they periodically forget to take it. Um, you know, I try to use the highest dose of a longer-acting ARB that, as I can. I tend to use Olmosartan in those patients that I'm trying to get the longest activity of, of an ARB. So that's typically what I'm using nowadays, although, you know, like everybody else, we evolve in practice. Um, so that's, uh, I've seen plenty of people and those people that do present with flash pulmonary edema that is due to the renovascular hypertension, they do tend to re uh, respond pretty well to the intervention. So an angioplasty or stent, a stent would have to be done if they've got, um, atherosclerotic disease. Yeah. And this patient, we gave you all the risk factors for atherosclerotic disease plus the age. Mm -hmm. I know um, when you read about this topic, they always mention like fibromuscular dysplasia. So like, what does that patient look like? How, how would that patient look different from this patient? Somebody with fibromuscular dysplasia, you can present later in life with fibromuscular dysplasia. So mm -hmm. don't discount it in a 55, 65 year old uh, woman because they can present later in life. I've, I've seen that, but typically classically it is a younger woman. The fibromuscular dysplasia is more of kind of a developmental disease. So it's, it's like a, it's like a web like interference with the blood flow. So the, the, the way that the vascular people have described it to me is like a spiraling or like a web like blockage of blood flow. And to really know for sure, you have to go do an angiogram, put a wire across and measure the pressure because sometimes it can look pretty bad on angiogram, but there's actually no pressure drop across the lesion. So to know for certain that you're, you're doing something that's going to benefit the patient, you need to do a pressure gradient measurement and then do the angioplasty. The good thing about FMD is that these patients are typically younger, 95% um, female. So it's, it's pretty unusual for a male to have this, but can happen. But it usually just needs angioplasty and not a stent, unless there's like a complication, which can happen when you try to angioplasty. You can have a dissection or spontaneous dissection can occur with FMD. And then the other thing is they, they have disease elsewhere in their body. So they have carotid, vertebral disease. You, you have to listen everywhere. So listen over their brachial arteries, femoral Listen over any artery you can think of. You might hear brewy. I've, I've heard it over the brachial artery, rough, you know, different arteries across the body. Um, and I, I typically don't deal with the carotid and vertebral. Uh, we've got a vascular team that also kind of helps do that evaluation. But they can also have coronary artery dissections as well. So that's, uh, you know, not a totally benign disease, but it, it's usually the patients that I'm seeing are 
focused on just the kidney artery. So I try to intervene when we can. And I wanted to, before I forget to do this, you were involved in writing, it was in 2022, or at least it was released in 2022, the AHA put out a statement about uh, uh, renovascular disease and hypertension. And I found it very useful to read through. It's very readable. There's figures and tables in there that are really useful. There's an algorithm in there, kind of how to think about this. Um, So just a shout out to that. And uh, I, I just... This is a condition where I feel like when we see resistant hypertension, as you mentioned, that's pretty common. So we see that all the time and everyone's like, oh yeah, we're going to get the renal artery ultrasound and make it seem like A, we would know what to do if if we found something and then B, like, like if we find something, all these people are going to benefit from doing something about it. So can you just comment on like sort of the workup, uh, like identifying people that have like it that have it from either atherosclerosis or FMD, like I imagine they're not going to jump right to angiography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the pe- my initial approach is I don't do a workup for it. Even if okay. I kind of suspect that <laughs> they've got, if I suspect that they have renovascular hypertension, I will try to treat them medically with an ACE or an ARB, maximize that. Um, mm-hmm. If it is a case where I think it's FMD and it's a it, the right situation, I am more inclined to send those patients to intervention. If it's a young woman that wants uh, to become pregnant, that's beneficial because they don't have to deal with the ACER and ARB. So there's some reasons to do an intervention. It's also lower risk. Hopefully they can just do an angioplasty in that case. So that FMD is one of the cases where I do think it's reasonable to go ahead and do the evaluation and sometimes, um, do an intervention. Now, the the higher risk patients that have likely atherosclerotic disease, I don't go for an evaluation for those patients unless I really think that they have an indication for surgery. So the patients that present with hypertensive encephalopathy, which is a condition that is pretty rare, but I almost always find a secondary cause of hypertension in those patients in the hospital. So I work those patients up to the hilt including some sort of renal imaging for renal artery stenosis. I've at least found a few renal artery stenosis that we angioplastied in that case, and that's a severe presentation. Um, Other conditions, um, if they have bilateral renal artery stenosis and they're failing in some way, so resistant hypertension is not improving, or the, the classical kind of cycle that I describe of, of bilateral stenosis is you treat with any medicine. It doesn't matter if it's an ACE or an ARB, you lower the blood pressure and then you see creatinine go up. And then shortly after that, blood pressure goes up. So then you intensify the medicines again, get the blood pressure down, creatinine goes up again. So you get in this vicious cycle where you're chasing your tail to improve blood pressure, and no matter what you do, creatinine worsens. That patient makes sure that they don't have renal artery, bilateral renal artery stenosis. That's not a condition that's unilateral stenosis. Just one blockage in one artery is not going to do that. That patient might have bilateral stenosis, and that's somebody that needs possibly an intervention. Um, you know, and I, those are the people with severe disease. And they would benefit from an intervention. They're not people that fit into the criteria for astral or coral. 
those studies really enrolled people with pretty mild renovascular hypertension that was often unilateral. And doing an intervention in that case doesn't really help those people prevent advance, uh, progression of their kidney disease. What I'm describing are people that fall outside of the criteria for that. So they're people that their hypertension specialist or kidney disease doctor would have done an intervention on, and they never would have been enrolled in those studies. And I've got several of those patients, too, that um, I described to you earlier that I've got um, successes and I've got failures in those patients. You don't always help people by doing an intervention. So some of the worst cases I've seen have been pretty advanced bilateral stenosis, and you try to do an intervention, open up the kidney artery, and they have pretty rapid decline in their kidney function. So I've seen that. And I've also, like I said, had successes where we've done an angioplasty or stent and preserved their kidney function. The people that I've seen that I have the most longstanding success with have had an open intervention. So they've had a bypass, like a splenic renal bypass or a, or a, or an, or a graft bypass. So you don't necessarily want to do that. And usually that's because they've got some anatomical reason they can't do an, uh, a stent. So one patient I had had a huge coral reef aorta, had a blockage that was so big you couldn't get to the arteries to do an intervention. So they had to do a bypass. And this populate the other thing to emphasize, those patients have a huge cardiovascular risk, probably the highest cardiovascular risk of any patient you take care of. And you've got to make sure that the, everything is intensified. So statin, aspirin, maybe Plavix. I'm not really a, a high prescriber of Plavix, but usually a cardiologist or another vascular specialist involved, and they're they're optimizing that. But or clopidogrel. The and the highest you're saying the highest risk group is that bilateral renal artery stenosis. That the ones where you're where they're you're they're having that you lower their blood pressure, their creatinine goes up. The blood pressure goes up. You lower the blood pressure again. Creatinine goes up. That that group is the highest risk. Well, any patient with renovascular hypertension, actually, because it's it's a risk okay. equivalent. So it's a PAD risk equivalent. And but the people with bilateral stenosis are extremely high risk, and and they actually are at fairly sig- if if they're in that cycle that I'm describing, they're at a pretty significant risk of their kidneys going on to fail no matter what you're doing, because mm-hmm. that's kind of rapidly declining. And I've, you know, like mm-hmm. I said, those people, you're usually doing an intervention to try to salvage kidney function. And it does mm-hmm. work sometimes, not all the time. So it sounds like, um, it sounds like uh, bilateral, because the, the the paradox here for me, and Paul, I don't know if that you noticed this too, like we're always taught like, okay, if you start an ACE or an ARB and their creatinine bumps more than 30%, they might have bilateral renal artery stenosis. Yeah. And I always thought the answer would be, okay, then you, they should not be on an ACE or an R, but it sounds like the medical therapy is still, you You still have to treat them, try to treat them medically. Is that, how do you, how do we reconcile those things? Because I would be like, uh-oh, creatinine went way up. I got to stop. Yeah, the, I've seen the some of the people, I've seen at least a couple of cases where they just have profound, you, you start a little bit of lisinopril, 10 milligrams, and they go into renal failure. Even require I've seen a couple of people require dialysis from it. I've got mm. uh, the, one of the first patients I found with it. Um, 
was on dialysis for a month and I, I met him when he was kind of recovering and actually came off of dialysis. And I worked, I, was, I said, okay, this is clearly suspicious for bilateral stenosis. And when I did the MRI, I think we did, they called me the next day and said, not only does he have bilateral stenosis, it's because he has a type A aortic dissection, which has probably been there for months. So you, that's just an anecdote, but you, you should evaluate those patients. So the question is like, if you have, if you have, uh, if you put someone on, uh, ACE or an ARB and their creatinine bumps, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what do we do? Do you keep going or did you, you do the evaluation? You're like, okay, they have, you do a, let's say you do an ultrasound or you do a CTA or MRA, you prove that they have bilateral stenosis and then you're like, okay, so they have it. I know why they're creatinine bumped. I'm going to keep going with that, with that blockade or. Yeah. So if it's a unilateral stenosis, uh, I always try to treat medically and, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of a creatinine bump, is, um, I'm going to push through, especially if you're going from severe hypertension to controlled, you expect a little bit of a rising creatinine there. And so I'm personally tolerating that. Uh, I understand that people get really kind of nervous about that. If they have bilateral stenosis and, and, you know, they've got a severe increase, uh, like I described, it, it really doesn't matter if it's an ACE or an ARB, it's anything you throw at them to, to control blood pressure is going to worsen it. their creatinine. So non-specific vasodilator therapy is if that is worsening renal function, when you control blood pressure, that's a huge red flag for bilateral stenosis and somebody that needs an intervention. So I'm going to. There's there going to be a couple of Paul Williams classics moves in here. I'm going to actually take us a step back, if that's okay, and, and ask a fundamental question. And also, it'll be a multi-part question just to confuse the issue. But I would like, could you talk us through your approach to imaging? I feel like if you suspect um, renovascular hypertension, I feel like often what I see is sort of starting with an ultrasound and then sort of using that. And if that doesn't sort of prove anything, then sort of escalating which feels kind of inefficient. And then I know I would also, so I guess what is your approach to imaging? And my, and then second question is, does it differ if you suspect fibromuscular dysplasia versus atherosclerotic renovascular stenosis? So yes, definitely. Um, so I use whatever imaging they have already had done. Look, look at the images. If there's a huge discrepancy in renal size, no matter if it's CT, ultrasound, or non, whatever imaging, that's a, a huge indication to me that I've, I should suspect renovascular hypertension. I don't necessarily do further workup. I treat medically. Then once I've, I've decided we need to do more imaging, probably it's going to be driven mainly by their renal function. So if they have advanced CKD, MRI is probably out with the gadolinium. I do prefer my, my number one agent, my, my number one approach is to do a CT angiogram because I think that gives you the best definition. Um, you can be misled if you have if FMD. So it's FMD is difficult. Really, if you have a huge a high suspicion for FMD, you may be better off to go straight to angiogram and just put it to rest, especially if it's a young patient low risk. They don't have a lot of atherosclerosis. It's a low risk procedure in that patient. Now that's, um, you know, I don't want to 
make everybody go out and order a bunch of angiograms for that. Can I can I read from from the renal from the guidelines that that, that you guys the AHA wrote? They wrote suspected FMD because uh, there there's a line it says particularly women with early onset accelerated malignant or resistant hypertension, a small kidney without any uropathy, or arterial bruit in the abdomen flank or neck or FMD in another vascular territory. So that's kind of, you know, I guess that's, so that's, I don't think people are going to be sending too many people to angiograms, yeah. you know, though. so if they look for that, you know, if they look for that description. Yeah. Um, the other option, obviously, is renal duplex ultrasound. And I feel like I've been misled a lot of times by either regular ultrasound or duplex ultrasound. I do find it useful, and I I have a specific group that I send patients to to do this that I I trust and I feels it gives me the best um, result. And every different institution is going to have a specific either vascular radiology or or a specific group that may give more reliable results. So I've specifically been misled on some ultrasounds that showed normal sized kidneys. And then by the time they were referred to my, my clinic and I said, okay, you're, you're correct. This sounds like bilateral stenosis, but there's no difference in kidney size. I repeat the imaging. So if you have a high suspicion for bilateral stenosis, the key is repeat the imaging because I've seen this at least a couple of times. Kidney, if they're, kidney is truly ischemic, it can really shrink rapidly. So mm-hmm. I've the patient that I saw from an outside location, nephrologist was appropriately concerned about it, did an ultrasound, kidneys were normal size, sent them to me and I said, you're right, this sounds like bilateral stenosis. And by the time I repeated the imaging, even within a couple of months, the kidney had really shrunken to, you know, basically a non-functional size. So it was very clear that they had something and a vascular insult to that kidney. And, and they did have eventually bilateral stenosis and intervened on that patient. But if you do suspect it, um, you might need to follow up imaging. Yeah. And one of the things I thought was interesting in just reading about the pathophys and, and just the natural course of this was that you're you're trying to if you are going to intervene uh, according to this uh this paper i keep referencing you guys have that figure where it says like okay you want to get to it before the fibro like it's it's ischemic but it hasn't been ischemic for so long that it's shrunken and all fibrotic and there's nothing to salvage which seems like if what you're describing there maybe this could even happen over the course of months so maybe that's why it's been so hard to prove it's hard that benefit yeah, it's it's really hard. And the patients that I've described, I've been surprised at how rapidly the kidney size has atrophied. So, mm. and, and those are patients I'm taking care of, and I'm trying to intervene and and salvage kidney. I, I think the key is you're not necessarily trying to salvage one kidney. You're trying to salvage uh, probably other kidney. So if they've, you're probably not trying to salvage that atrophied kidney you're trying to treat the other one that still has a bulk a pretty good kidney mass and if they've got bilateral stenosis that's the one to go after 
So we've we've talked a lot about this renovascular disease. I think it's is very useful. We talked about how to recognize people with FMD, like what that would look like. We talked about the patients that uh, maybe they're just on a little bit of lisinopril and uh, they can't tolerate it. Um, that that might be somebody that has bilateral renal artery stenosis, and and how to recognize that. Um, what about if we're just, as you said, looking at prior imaging for people and we see, oh, this person has like a unilateral one kidney smaller. And, you know, if we suspect somebody or if we just suspect somebody has renal artery stenosis because we saw it was commented on incidentally on imaging, do we have to do anything different as a primary care that's treating this person for high blood pressure? Uh, right. Not all small kidneys are due to renovascular disease, especially for younger patients. It's fairly common that they've either got a congenital um, urologic abnormality. Maybe they've had kidney infections in childhood that's affected one side more than the other that led to atrophy. And that alone can can be a cause of hypertension. Um, mm -hmm. It's relatively, it's pretty rare that FMD is the cause of, you know, renal atrophy. That's... Um, not very common, although it, it can occur. I'm not going to say it's, it can never occur, mm -hmm. but the people, the real clue is, do they, do they have other either systemic disease from FMD in their carotid, their vertebral arteries somewhere else, or have peripheral artery disease due to atherosclerotic disease with all the risk factors. Usually you can identify other vascular disease. So a, a good screening test for that group might be an ABI, so an ankle brachial blood pressure um, and they're high risk and you're going to treat them as a high cardiovascular risk patient. Uh, again, I treat medically and then pursue the renovascular workup if they're not behaving like they should, or there's an indication for an intervention. Okay. And that's well within our primary care wheelhouse, you know, treat all their cardiovascular risk factors, mm -hmm. get their, try to get their blood pressure to goal. And uh, probably if we can't, we're probably until I get a couple cases of this under my belt, I'm probably going to be, or maybe even after I get a couple cases under my belt, I'm going to be uh, calling for services from people like yourself to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Uh, Paul, any last questions or should we go to take-home points? I am ready for some take-home points. Okay. So Matt, this has been fantastic. Uh, as we as we said up top of the show, this is part of our Neff Madness pod crawl. So people should check out the other Neff Madness podcast, they can look for them, uh, links in the show notes uh, or in the show description of this episode. But Matt, what is your what are your take-home points for the audience uh, from these two, you know, these two cases we gave you tonight? So for the primary aldosteronism workup, number one, you don't have to stop all the medicines to screen for PA. In fact, if you're on an ACE or an ARB and you have findings that are suggestive, that's almost uh, more specific. Number two is you don't have to have hypokalemia. I didn't emphasize that in the in the first case, but resistant hypertension on, on three or four medicines is an indication to look for primary aldo. So send the renin aldo in that setting. And not everybody, you don't have to do the full workup for PA. Uh, so for the our case, I wasn't probably going to send that patient to surgery eventually, but just having the the aldo and the renin kind of helps me understand what might be a best treatment for that patient. So just knowing that they've got suppressed renin, their aldo's 13, which is is not, it's not super high, but it's also not uh, low either. 
uh, they would benefit from probably an MR antagonist as well. And then for the second case, renovascular disease that we we talked about, what what about a take-home point or two from that one? So for renovascular hypertension, treat medically and then look when you have an indication that you think might be pushing you to do an intervention. Uh, if they're not behaving correctly, or if they've got one of those high-risk uh, situations, which you want to prevent in the future, like hypertensive encephalopathy or admission with um, you know, uncontrolled hypertension, flash pulmonary edema already on an ACER and ARB, then those are patients that I would probably do the intervention for. And the bigger kind of, not, not enough people see this, so I think it, it needs to be driven home that people with bilateral renal artery stenosis, their renal function is going to worsen with any blood pressure control. It doesn't matter if it's an ACE or an ARB. And then it, you get in the psych- cyclical situation. Those are the people you need to do the workup then and, and do the evaluation, do the intervention when you can. Um, so that's the... Paul, I wonder how many people are going to be like, wait a minute, I think I've seen that <laughs> now, now that I know it exists. Yep. Like, <laughs> yeah, the caveat, yeah, the caveat is that severe hypertension, once you bring it under control, creatinine does go up. Like, you know, let's yeah. say creatinine goes from 1.5 to 2.5 with control of blood pressure from, you know, 240 down to 140 to 150. That's pretty common too. But the thing is with bilateral renal artery stenosis, it just keeps recurring. So then Mm. creatinine goes up and then blood pressure worsens. And then you get the blood pressure under control and the creatinine goes up even further. So it becomes a cycle. When you're in that situation, look for renal artery stenosis, bilateral stenosis. So the last thing I wanted to to do was uh, we were talking off off air about this, but give give the audience a plug uh, or uh, about about the book that you've done on high blood pressure. Yeah, so Swapnol Higher Math at Edgar Lerma and, and myself we edited the Hypertension Secrets uh, book, which is a it it's a small book. It's pretty concise. That's our goal is to keep it relatively concise surface level-ish, although enough detail to fill in and hopefully prompt people to go look for for more. So it's for anybody that takes care of resistant hypertension, nephrologist, primary care, anybody that's interested in taking the, the hypertension certification exam, uh, it's a good book as, as well as the, it's in that same group as the Nephrology Secrets book, which is also a great book that Joel Toff does. All right. Thank you so much for all your time. This this has been fantastic. All right. Thank you for having me. I enjoy talking about this stuff, as you can tell. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Always a little bit of a question. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show. Uh, You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. And you can also send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. 
And I wanted to give a special thanks to Joel Toff and the whole crew at Neff Madness for inviting us to be part of this, again, uh, this pod crawl. Uh, The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpace. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media uh, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. So with all that, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. 